We will hear argument next in case 2440, Minerva Surgical Incorporated versus Hologic Incorporated. Mr. Hockman? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Patent Act doesn't provide for a sign or estoppel, and never has. In fact, it says invalidity shall be a defense in any action. That's essential to the fundamental patent bargain. The public grants exclusive rights, but only to the extent inventors publicly share useful advances in knowledge. Accused infringers who prove a patent is invalid vindicate the right of all to make and use and sell unpatented products. Hologic says Congress didn't have to write a sign or estoppel into the Patent Act. It reads this Court's 1924 decision in Formica as having settled the sign or estoppel into patent law. We don't think that's what Formica did, but it doesn't matter, because the world didn't stop in 1924. In 1945, this court allowed an assigner to invalidate a patent in Scott Paper. That's squarely contrary to assigner estoppel. In 1947, in Katzinger, this court confirmed that Scott Paper meant an assigner was free to challenge the validity of the patent. And Lear, looking back on the state of the law before 1952, said that this court had by then undermined the very basis of any general rule of patent estoppel. The logic of this court's decisions require abandoning assigner estoppel. Exposing bad patents is vital patent law policy, and allowing assigners to do so carries no meaningful costs. No reliance interests stand in the way of eliminating this anomalous doctrine, and a patent law-specific limitation on the rights of assigners is nothing like claim preclusion or issue preclusion or even equitable estoppel, which are generally applicable rules woven into our basic notions of fair and efficient litigation. At the very least, an inventor should be allowed to show that the assignee is asserting a claim broader than what the inventor adequately described and enabled. Not even estoppel by deed, a sign or estoppel supposed model, supports preventing challenges that appear on the face of the patent. And when, as here, the assignee, not the assignor, prosecuted the relevant claim nine years after the patent rights were sold, and did so to prevent competition from the assigner's new improved device, a sign or estoppel is particularly at odds with patent law policy. This court should order the Federal Circuit to consider Minerva's Section 112 invalidity argument on the merits. be happy to take any questions. Uh, thank you, Mr. Hockman. I want to focus a little bit on your, your policy argument that getting rid of a signer estoppel uh, would help uh, you know, get a rid, rid of bad patents uh, and encouraging inventors uh, to, um, to challenge uh, a particular uh, claims. Um, but I thought strong patents uh, was the way we encourage uh, uh, invention and that a signer estoppel uh, helped ensure the strength and stability of, of those patents. How do you sort out those competing policy uh, arguments? Well, I think the main policy point is that our, our, uh, our uh, patent system um, absolutely believes in encouraging innovation, but it's the, as I referred in my opening to the patent bargain, it's for, there's, there's, a, there's a bargain on the other side. The inventors have to provide, among other things, uh, description and, and enablement of what they've done. They have to give that to the public in order to get the benefit. And our patent system depends on challenges to validity to make sure that we don't over-protect we don't provide the benefits of patent exclusivity without the parties doing all the things, without the inventors doing all the things necessary to earn that um, ex- substantial public benefit. That includes the time-limited uh, nature of the, of the exclusivity in Scott Paper, and it includes, among other things, um, the written description enable, uh, enablement issues 
uh, involved here. So it, it's true that a sign or estoppel leads to um, challenging bad patents, but that strengthens the overall policy of the patent system and corrects and helps correct for the over-patenting that is uh, uh, built into the system and has been discussed by uh, scholars for a long time. Uh, counsel, if, if we do not agree with you that we should get rid of a signer uh, uh, estoppel altogether, uh, do you have any complaints about the position of the United States uh, on how to limit it? Yeah, I, I think I think we would certainly prevail on the position of the United States. I think the most important thing to say about the position of the United States is that uh, we, we do not agree that this court should simply send it back to the federal circuit to figure out uh, whether uh, uh, a sign or estoppel should apply in this case. This court should do that in this case for a number of reasons. Um, first, it's exceedingly important that the assign or estoppel issue, which is a threshold question, um, it's going to open up or close a, a, a complicated question about validity that involves experts in litigation and all sorts of uh, other uh, costly litigation processes. Uh, it's important that that issue be decided clearly and, and decisively early on in the case. Thank and you, Counsel. Justice Thomas? Uh, yes, thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, counsel, you uh, said that um, the, you could not compare assign or estoppel to uh, uh, concepts such as uh, issue preclusion or claim preclusion, etc. Uh, you, you distinguish them, but I don't think you demonstrated why those uh, principles, which do not appear in the Patent Act, uh, are applicable or acceptable, but assign or estoppel is not. Yeah, so uh, just to, thank you, Justice Thomas. Our, our argument with respect to that is there are, we don't dispute that there are times when common law principles uh, inform the background assumptions against which Congress legislates. It's just not everything in the common law, and it's not every, and it's not every common law principle. And issue preclusion and claim preclusion, I think, are uh, maybe unique, both in the length of which in, that they've been part of the common law and uh, the uniformity with which they have been adopted, not just in patent cases in, and not need to be adapted to patent cases, but are applicable generally across the board. I would think issue preclusion and claim preclusion is a background assumption of every statute, every cause of action Congress writes, unless it says otherwise. This court, you know, for, for, hunt, for more than 150 years, has said those doctrines are implicit in the notion of a fair and efficient judicial system. A sign or stop is nothing like that. Well, let's, uh, uh, petitioner here, I'm, I'm really interested in clarification more than anything else on this point, but petitioner here's, um, uh, assigned, uh, a certain patent. There were changes, uh, to that, and I didn't quite get how much, uh, the, uh, patent was changed, uh, or continued. Uh, if you could help me on that, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, and, and for this, I, it, it would help if you could turn to the joint appendix at page 833, the supplemental appendix. That's the patent. And then maybe put a finger in uh, 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 same supplemental appendix 903, which is claim 31. I mean, here, here's the difference, okay? Their, their position is that their patent, claim, which is claim 1, it's column 19 at page 833, and I'm going to focus on the second paragraph there, an applicator, which, which has the term applicator head. 
the dispute is whether um, an applicator head, that, that the part that comes into contact with the endometrial lining, uh, it can be moisture permeable, has to be moisture permeable, or can be moisture impermeable. They are, their, their invention, their, their patent says, that has been construed to allow a moisture impermeable applicator head. Now, they, don't, they, they have exactly one thing they point to that suggests, that they say suggests, that the, um, the inventor, Chaba Trukai, when he originally filed his application, uh, had the same thing. And they point to this page 903. And you'll notice um, one th- one most, the most conspicuous and obvious thing about this is that the term applicator head isn't even in that claim. It's not even there. And I hasten to add, if you go back to 833 and you go down about line 13, it says that when the applicator head is in its expanded state, it's configured to form to the shape of the uterus. So it's coming into contact. It's, 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 it, that, claim, that claim limitation is also not in Claim 31. So what they have is a claim where a, a moisture impermeable device traps moisture by conforming to the shape of the uterus and traps moisture there, and they're saying that Trukai did that as well. And there's simply nothing, nothing at all in Claim 31 that even remotely suggests that um, moisture should be trapped. That, by the way, thank, is Thank you, Counsel. The- uh, Justice Breyer? Thank you. Uh, counsel, is, I, seem, I assume that there's, assume with me that there's quite a lot of precedent in favor of some form of the, of the, of the, of the doctrine. Uh, now, you want to abolish it entirely, but we have many briefs that suggest not entirely, but limited. Which set of limitations, in your opinion, would be the best, and in particular, as the chief asked, what's wrong with the limitations set forth by the government? Well, I'll start with the I'll start with the government's position. And I don't want you to go back to do nothing. I, I've got that point. I I want you under- to choose among them. Understood. Understood, Justice Breyer. I'm gonna I'm gonna start with the government's position. My my fundamental quibble, and it's really it's really in this case a quibble with the government's position, really turns on how how to implement this materially identical. I think that's a pernicious uh introduction of ambiguity in the application of the doctrine. But here's how I understand the government's position, and this may help. The government seems to be focused on ensuring that if an inventor has made a genuine representation that his invention encompasses, you know, as much as the assignee ultimately obtains, that the inventor should be held to that. And my concern is that um, if, you, if you go back to the estoppel by deed roots of this, the kind of genuineness, the kind of representation has to be rock solid. It has to be truly firm. A warranty deed accompanied by a seal is a special kind of assertion about a true fact in the state of the, of the world in all of the law. And to allow debates over the scope of never issued patent claims, like, claim, like application claim 31 at, at Joint Appendix 903, is to, is to introduce a completely different sort of ambiguity into the process than, than, than has any kind of basis for an estoppel. So I would say it should be, you know, very, very close to text, would require very, very close to textual identity, and importantly, I would also add, and the government's a little ambiguous about this, it has to have been pending both 
um, at the time, the party against whom the uh, estoppel is asserted assigned away the rights, and the party who is asserting the estoppel um, uh, obtained the rights. In other words, it has to have been a representation that was made and actually somebody looking at the patent file at the time thinks was still being made at the time of the assignment. I also, Justice Alito? Well, my fundamental question is, why is this a question for us and not a question for Congress? It's a question of statutory interpretation. Ultimately, there's precedent supporting the doctrine in some form, the Federal Circuit, which is the court that Congress created to deal with these issues, has worked out a body of precedent on it. Uh, there are policy arguments in both directions. There are potentially influential supporters of both sides of this argument. Why should we get into this? Would we not have to overrule some of our precedents to do what you ask? Uh, no, Justice Alito, I don't think you would. Uh, the only precedent that has been that is even purporting to require being overruled is Formica. And remember, um, Formica allowed a party, an assignor, to use prior art to narrow the scope of the claims. The government agrees that today that's an invalidity argument. This is exactly the kind of doctrinal dinosaur, as as this court said in Kimball, that you you abandon that you give up on. Lear and Scott Paper have already done all of the work. It's you, think Kim, you think Kimball's approach to, statute, to stare decisis supports you here? I actually, think, I actually think it does, Your Honor, because I, I don't think you have a square holding in Formica in favor, as we've argued in our brief, and, and we, can, we can get into this if you want. We read Formica exactly the way the United States read Formica in the Katzinger case, as, as providing only implied approval. This isn't, a, this isn't the kind of precedent that you have to, you know, you, you have to treat as settled, because it, it doesn't appear to have been settled. And I would em- emphasize also, Scott Paper, ex- you know, and, as this court said in Katzinger, expressly allowed already did the work, expressly allowed an assignor to challenge invalidity. It is exceedingly difficult to come up with a principle. Lear said it's impossible to come up with a principle that can constrain the rationale for allowing an assigner in, uh, the assigner in Scott Paper to challenge validity for the reasons asserted there and any other invalidity challenge. Right, what, one, other, one other question, if I can get it in. Can parties contract around this? Can an assignment specify whether the assignor can challenge the patent or not, or would that be uh, against public policy in some sense? Yeah, I think, you know, this court hasn't squarely answered that question. I think in fairness, this court, most of what this court has had to say on the subject of that question points away from allowing parties to do that for the same reason that this court has repeated, has, has so deeply undermined Assign or estoppel. This court has said over and over for more than 150 years going back, you know, for, for roughly 150 years going way, way back, saying that it is critical that everyone be available to challenge the validity of patents. Assignors in particular are a super well positioned to do that and do the public service of invalidating bad patents and freeing up competition. As right, thank you. Justice Sotomayor. Counsel, um, I will ask the government about uh, the limitations to its theory, uh, to its proposal. Um, but its proposal is very close to Westinghouse, isn't it? 
Uh, I think that's a fair characterization. I mean, in I, other I words, when when Westinghouse was decided, uh, patent uh, over broadness or patent uh, uh, narrowness was an issue that came into claim construction, but now it comes in under validity. Correct. Uh, it was allowed to come in under. There wasn't really a, a stark a difference between infr- non-infringement and validity as there is today, so that the, the arguments didn't quite really, way back when yeah, cash out that way. But now they do. So that, right, that's, that's part of the problem, which is things have changed since then. Yes. So right. that um, the SG's proposal is really to bring things back to where Westinghouse uh, left it. Correct. Well, I don't think so because I think the SG's proposal, in fairness. Um, is very, very um, close to our view about exempting one, Section 112 challenges like ours. And, you know, obviously um, the, the, the attorney for the government will speak to that issue herself, but, you know, they, they say that the, the threshold question of whether estoppel can apply in a case involving a 112 um, issue substantially overlaps with the substance of the 112 issue itself. To be quite honest, I think it is exactly the same, and I don't think there's any space between... I'll let them... Tell us if there's a different space. But my next question for you is, going back to what Justice Alito started with, um, there may have been a period of of uncertainty between uh, uh, Lear and uh, the Fed Circuit ruling in 1988 that a stoppel was was still being used. Um, Given that Congress uh, did a major overhaul of the Patent Act, um, was it 20, 2011, uh, Your Honor? Yeah, 2011. Um, shouldn't, why should we interfere when um, this type of defense uh, has been approved for such a long period of time? Well, let's not understate the gap. It's 30 years without anybody thinking a sign or estoppel was the law between Lear and Diamond Scientific. And it would be an astonishing inversion of the judicial hierarchy for this court to infer congressional acquiescence to the federal circuit's view on patent law, even while this court's decisions in Scott Paper and Lear had for 30 years left the doctrine dead. I think that's, uh, I don't think there's any basis for any kind of post enactment, uh, any kind of, that would be a an, an uncommon and never before seen uh, standard of uh, post enactment inference, and I also think, um, with respect, that the federal circuit it, it persisted for so long only because the federal circuit has exclusive jurisdiction over patent law. Justice there would have been a certain uh, Mr. Hockman, I'd like you to assume with me, as you did for Justice Breyer, that um, there is a lot of precedent for some form of this doctrine that Westinghouse called it a settled rule, that Scott Paper did nothing more than create an exception to it, and that Lear said that the equities were far more compelling for a signer estoppel uh, than for the licensee estoppel that they um, eliminated. Um, so let's just say it's a settled rule, and you need some special factor to justify overturning the doctrine under our stare decisis principles. What are your special factors? So I think the special factors are um, that Scott Paper has already allowed it to happen. As I mentioned, that the argument... That well, was you're allowed- just quibbling with my uh, assumption, because my assumption was that Scott Paper created an exception to it, left the rule in place. 
So what right. are your what are your special factors for overturning the well, basic rule? Well, what makes it what makes it a doctrinal dinosaur is that what Scott Paper and and Formica considered non-infringement arguments are now, as we sit here today, invalidity arguments. Practicing the prior art defense is is actually an invalidity argument. Narrowing the claim um, in light of the prior art is uh, you know a kind of absolute method of last resort, and you, in fact, is preferred as an invalidity argument. So the law has moved uh, in, in that respect in a significant way. Lear specifically said that, looking, that, that it was not the general rule. So, but by the time, um, you know, the, 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 the case of, you know, the, it's considering licensee estoppel, the idea that patent estoppel was a general rule had been, has already been declared by this court no longer a general rule. So I think under these circumstances, oh, I would also add... Okay, let me, let me take you to a different place. Um, let's think about the core application of a sign or estoppel, and I guess I want to know why it is that you don't think that this core application makes a lot of sense and accords with our basic principles of fairness. So let's say that an inventor invents something, she obtains a patent, she later sells the patent... And she then argues that the invention was completely obvious all the time and isn't patentable. So the question is, why is it fair to entertain that invalidity argument? It seems as though uh, it's a total bait-and-switch. Right. If it's a bait-and-switch, then you have a very uh, a traditional equitable estoppel argument. But a sign of estoppel is different from equitable estoppel. Right, and the equitable, you know, equitable estoppel, which this court recognized in SEA hygiene, is available. You know, would would apply if, in that situation, the investor. Well, I mean, that's semantics, Mr. Huckman. That's semantics. Is 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 that a stopped? No, that I don't think that is semantics. What, is that a stopped, Mr. Huckman? If if she knew at the time of the assignment that it was invalid, and she had, and, and she and she said I'm I'm going to sneak this away, then it's then it's fraud, and there's state law there's state law remedies, and and she can be. Mr. Hogman, I just want to know if it's a stopped or not. Sure, it can be a stopped. Okay, now let me ask you about another is. question, Mr. Hockman. So, is there a meaningful difference between that case and a case where the inventor invents something, she swears an oath, she transfers the application before she receives a patent? And the final patent is exactly the same as the application. Uh, yes, I think there is. Because, I mean, in that situation, um, if, again, if she knew at the time she swore the oath, if she breached her duty of candor, then I think you could have an estoppel. But there are also things that, that you can learn. Justice, Justice Gorsuch? Let me come at the problem a different way. It, it seems to me that if we all agree that the common law would have had an equitable estoppel uh, defense here available, <laughs> and you don't contest that. The question is whether this court should uh, create something more um, on the basis of Formica and uh, Scott Paper, which I understand the criticisms of. And the, but the SG says we, we, can, we can save the day, we can fix it. And it's going to be more than equitable estoppel, but it isn't going to be that much more. Uh, arm's length, valuable consideration, materially identical claims. Um, I, I want to know what I'm buying there. What, 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 I know how to apply equitable estoppel. What kinds of questions do you think will arise and this court will have to address if we bless this new, new revised and improved version of a signer estoppel? 
thank you, Justice Gorsuch. My view on this is that the most troubling question that you'd be buying is what to do about the disputed meanings of never issued or, um, or, or, or the disputed understandings of pending applications for patents, pending patent claim terms. Materially identical, again, I mean, if it's given a really robust uh, um, uh, application by this court and it's made clear that it is, you know, something in the nature of approaching textually identical, well, then you have, I think, a fairly uh, a strong basis for uh, being assured of consistent application. But the, the risk of inconsistent application, the risk that an inventor never intended something, but is later, with the benefit of hindsight and, and you know, an able, able lawyering, as, as, you know, attorneys uh, for Hologic are obviously able lawyers, um, going back and, 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 and filling in uh, inferences and assertions about what was written down in an application in 1998 means, should be understood to mean today in light of everything we know today, I think it's pernicious. And I don't think um, we should be getting into that. Why would equitable estoppel solve that problem? Because equitable estoppel is, is focused on um, actual representations. You, know, you need to have an actual representation. What is it? And you also need to have reliance. So because you need both an actual representation and reliance, and you know, we've obviously briefed that we think a sign or estoppel too requires representation and reliance, but you know, I, the questions have asked me. So let, let me interrupt you there. I'm sorry. I'm just see if I understand the, 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 the delta here. Most of these cases involve uh, small inventors assigning patents to very large corporations and who are fully capable of examining the patent and maybe in better position to identify its uh, validity um, and who undoubtedly very rarely rely on these individuals. Um, and if we get rid of uh, <coughs> material identical, if, if we require material identically claims and, and uh, get rid of reliance, um, we're, we're really just advantaging the large inventors to the disadvantage of the, sorry, the large purchasers to the disadvantage of the individual inventors. That, that's exactly right. I think one of the things that makes reliance so important is that it ensures that there's a kind of uh, something, uh, something akin to a meeting of the minds. Everybody knows at the relevant time what they're talking about. And do, having to figure that out with the benefit of hindsight, you know, here we are almost... Blowing away reliance requirement just gives a, a, a free pass to the large purchasers. Exactly. Exactly. Right, thank you. Justice Kavanaugh? Uh, thank you, Chief Justice, and uh, good morning, Mr. Hockman. Uh, your lead argument in the brief uh, from pages 17 to 41 is to eliminate the doctrine of a sign or estoppel, and I guess I want to pick up on Justice Kagan's questions on that. You have Chief Justice Taft, of course, in Westinghouse, uh, referring to the doctrine at that point in 1924 as well settled since 1880. Um, and uh, it's continued without elimination uh, since then. So what, what is, I'm not sure I heard exactly what is the special justification, and particularly in a statutory case, where, as Justice Alito said, our, our doctrine of stare decisis is especially strong. So why, why uh, get involved in overturning something that was well settled as of 1924? Because, because it, it didn't stay well settled. Because this court in Scott Paper um, very clearly allowed an invalidity claim. Uh, Katzinger uh, agreed with that characterization of it. Um, the, 
so the result is you actually the, the, the rule the rule of assigner estoppel is assigner cannot challenge the validity of the patent. Scott Paper says the assigner can challenge the validity of the patent. So now we have something that's no longer actually a rule, and Lear already uh, already recognized this. So in other words, this is the kind of as as Kimball says doctrinal dinosaur. It has been whittled away. It has been the arguments for it have not only been undermined as a matter of policy, assigners are, are, are available to do um, very, uh, a very important public service of exposing bad patents. Um, the argument uh, that it was just a, that Formica sort of gave, gave full consideration, I think that doesn't hold up to um, inspection. It didn't discuss the relevant statutory language. It didn't cite Pope Manufacturing, which was the principal um, a case from this court 30 years earlier um, that it said. Well, it went through. I mean, I'm looking right at it. It went through a lot of the uh, lower court cases, and uh, you know, starts with 1880. And uh, I guess I'm not sure about that. But let me ask you a different question. Uh, in the respondents' brief, they say that a signer estoppel has engendered serious reliance interests, which is something uh, we also have to think about. And they say. Just want to get your reaction to. For decades, millions of patents and applications have been assigned on the assumption that assigner estoppel bars assigners from later challenging the validity of the assigned patent rights. Just want to get your reaction to that. Yeah, I, I think my principal reaction to that is for nearly 30 years, there was no case applying assigner estoppel. Courts had said it was dead. Commentators had said it was dead. And for 30 years, between Lear and Diamond Scientific, there was no issue about patent assignments. There was nobody running around claiming that their reliance interests had been undermined. And true, um, you know, the Federal Circuit's rule has been in place since Diamond Scientific. But let's, you know, there's been no discussion of the magnitude, you know, the, the, the notion that parties pay a premium so that it, because assigners aren't going to be able to challenge the validity of the patent is pure speculation. Mr. Hackman, I want to ask you about equitable estoppel. So how might equitable estoppel play out in this particular case? Let's say there's no assigner estoppel. You know, you have them alleging that Mr. Truckeye had lied in his inventor's oath um, and then admitted that after the fact. And then you have this dispute about Claim 31 of his original application being nearly identical to Claim 1 of the later um, patent. So is there any way, is it just about a lack of reliance interest? Or if you assume that those allegations that your friends on the other side make are true, would there be any case for equitable estoppel here? Uh, yeah, I think the case for equitable estoppel would be dead. I mean, there'd be, no, there'd be no equitable estoppel argument here at all, respectfully. So first off, there's no reason to believe at the time, at two, in 2004 that anybody at Cytic thought or believed they were buying a patent. Um, that could cover a moisture impermeable device. The only thing they've, they've never said, um, uh, Mr. Trukai said anything uh, to that effect to them. And the only thing they've pointed to, again, is this application claim 31. And with respectfully, it just doesn't do that. It doesn't, it not only doesn't have the language in the, in their claim. They didn't pick up application claim 31 and prosecute it. They wrote a different claim. And they did it because it doesn't have the claim term applicator head, the closest thing it has is the term electrode array. And the term electrode array, their view is, oh, because the term, it says electrode array, but it doesn't say um, moisture impermeable expressly, that means it must, be, it must cover moisture permeable. But I don't even know what a moisture permeable electrode array would be. That's, the electrode array is just the positioning, how the electrodes are positioned on some other part 
of the product, so whether it's the applica- called the applicator head or sometimes called the electrode carrying means. Can I the ask elect- you something else about the estoppel? So, yeah. you know, I think that the signer estoppel doctrine, you know, as estoppel doctrines often do when they're thinking about fairness, you know, punishes a turncoat assigner, right? And there's something unseemly about representing to the person to whom you're assigning a patent. It doesn't cover this. You know, it's it's valid. And then turning around and, and um, we all see the problem. You suggest that there can really be no reliance because people, especially sophisticated parties, as Justice Gorsuch suggests, are, are doing their own investigation of the patent's validity. Is there any reason why the reliance incurred or why there would be reliance by the parties who are the assignees that could hurt them? I mean, you suggest that they're perfectly capable of analyzing the patents and they're not going to be, you know, let down the primrose path by the assignor. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, with respect to this issue in particular, Section 112, all you have to do is pick up the, the patent specification and look at it. And you can find that there's just no explanation at all that could support a moisture impermeable device. So I don't, if they, if, if, I don't know what they could have relied on. Uh, under these circumstances. But I, I, I also think it's important to note, and one of the things that hasn't come out, is that when you have a patent application, there's all this turncoat concern. Before a claim issues, um, the patent prosecution process, and both parties agree about this, necessarily involves a lot of give and take with the patent examiner. Sometimes you go back and you do your own further research or further work on the product, and you discover new things about the product, and that requires changing the claims. Sometimes it requires removing claims. Sometimes it requires expanding them. Sometimes it requires narrowing them. A minute to wrap up, Mr. Hockman. Thank you. And and just to complete that question, the fact that um, you you have a patent claim um, that ends up looking different that the, the inventor thinks, no longer thinks that what they filed, you know, Paramount Publix and Hawkey and other cases make clear that the inventor oath is not, is not violated by simply deciding that it, it, it's not a viable patent. Um, look, as this discussion makes clear, a sign or estoppel is a doctrinal dinosaur, uh, and we should abandon it. Um, but at a minimum, no plausible justification supports applying a sign or estoppel here. Halogic chose to draft and prosecute its own broad claim that finds no support in Trukai's then 15-year-old specification, and it did so precisely because it wanted to frustrate competition from Trukai's latest innovation. Having gone beyond the specification, it has also gone beyond the range of any even arguable estoppel as a matter of equitable estoppel or any other kind of estoppel. This court should not allow a sign or estoppel to be wielded as a sword to frustrate legitimate competition. Thank you, counsel. Ms. Ratner? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, as petitioner has explained, the Federal Circuit's test for a signer estoppel is too broad. That court prevents an assigner from challenging any claim relating to an assigned invention, even if that claim looks nothing like the claims that existed at the time of the assignment. That's not how estoppel ordinarily works. The foundational requirement for estoppel is inconsistency, and an assigner acts inconsistently only when the claims it challenges at time two are the same as the claims it sold at time one. But while we agree with Petitioner that the Federal Circuit got it wrong, we don't agree that this court should get rid of assigner estoppel altogether. Lower courts have applied the doctrine for 140 years. This court approved it in 1924, and Congress hasn't seen fit to eliminate it over all that time. A signer estoppel can still play an important role, but only if it's limited to a true estoppel doctrine reflecting its origins in estoppel by deed. I welcome the court's question. 
Ms. Ratner, you say that the court should only apply assigner estoppel where the assignor sells patent rights for valuable consideration. Uh, how do you tell what valuable consideration is? Our basic point here, Mr. Chief Justice, is that if there are circumstances in which someone agrees to transfer any rights to an invention before that invention exists or before any bargaining over the value of that invention, then you can't really be said to implicitly represent that that invention has value. And it's so the, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I, it's that implicit representation that there's value that's really the key to assigner estoppel. So the familiar um, uh, process where a company hires an employee uh, in technical or whatever area and the employee uh, signs over inventions uh, that they may uh, uh, discover uh, in the course of their employment to the employer, uh, that would be or wouldn't be valuable consideration? We think that, that whether that would be valuable consideration in terms of a, 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 the legal aspect of contract law, we don't think that would be sufficient for applying a sign or estoppel. Because if employees have agreed up front to transfer any inventions and leave it to their company to figure out whether there's something patentable there and pursue patent rights, um, then you wouldn't have any sort of implicit warranty that what that employee is transferring is patentable and valuable. Justice Thomas? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, Counsel, um, could you give me your best take on the difference between what was originally assigned and what respondent uh, has now? Sure, Justice Thomas, although I would emphasize this is exactly the question that we think that the Court of Appeals should address because there are really three questions here. The first is, which is the relevant assignment? There was an assignment from Trukai in 1998 to Novacept, and we don't really know the circumstances of his continued relationship with Novacept to know whether the next assignment from um, in 2004 is also relevant. So the Court of Appeals has to figure out which of those two assignments and then what claims were pending at the time, and at the time of the 98 assignment, but not the 2004 assignment, there was this Claim 31. And then the question would be, we think, is Claim 31 essentially the same as Claim 1? And I I think Petitioner has pointed to some reasons why it might not be, uh, but but again, we would leave the Court of Appeals to sort those out. Thank you. Justice Breyer? Uh, My question was really the same as the Chief's, if you want to say anything more about that. But I have a a second question, which I'll say what it is, is what I'm having trouble doing. I can understand abolishing it. I can understand keeping it. But limiting it, I'm finding trouble in finding the right way to do that. Why? Well, Smith invents a widget. He goes to another company, having assigned the widget to the first company, and the second company wants to go ahead and sell Widget Prime. First company sues. And what they want to argue, perhaps like here, is wait a minute. What we want to make has nothing to do with that patent. Oh, no, it does. Go look at the claims. Well, it can't, because if it did include Widget Prime, the patent would be unlawful. So you see it can't. Well, says the Fed Circuit, you can't argue that. You're attacking your own patent. 
So I, I think, my God, they're foisting this invention on the public forever, and they can't argue even something like that, and they can't even make widget prime. You see the problem? I do, Justin. And how are you solving that? So I think we're solving it in two ways. There are two basic questions that we think need to be addressed before a signer estoppel is applied. The first is, is this a real transaction? That's the, the discussion I was having with the chief. Is this the type of transaction that someone might be said to be making implicit warranties? Is this sort of an arm's length sale between party A and party B? And, and that could knock out many circumstances like a, an employee who agrees up front to give anything invented. And then the second is, is there a match between what someone said was valuable at the time of the sale and what's at issue now? And we think if after a patent rights are assigned, that the assignee goes out and gets extremely broad new patents, then the price for that is they have to defend the breadth of that claim against the world, including the person who assigned those claims. Justice Alito? Where does your best come from? Is it just what you think is good policy? No, Justice Alito, we do think it is is good policy, but we also think that it derives both from this court's decision in Westinghouse and before that from basic principles of estoppel by deed. And there has been a a lot of discussion about equitable estoppel here, but I think it's important to remember that at common law, estoppel consisted of estoppel by deed, estoppel by conduct, or estoppel by record. Estoppel by conduct is what we now think of as equitable estoppel. And and these are the, the basic basic uh, principles, we think, that controlled estoppel by deed, such that what we're trying to do is really apply a patent-specific version of estoppel by deed. If you would think about the second prong of your test, uh, what decision of a federal court has applied that prong? So uh, there isn't a decision. This is the question that the court left open in Westinghouse, and I think Westinghouse identified the problem. It said, look, it may be harder to know whether to do estoppel when uh, this is a pending patent claim as opposed to an issued claim. And so we're trying to answer that question with the reasoning of Westinghouse and, again, estoppel by deed. And we think the answer is, well, you have that pending claim has to look like or, or be essentially the same as the issued claim that you're now saying is invalid. Thank you. Justice Sotomayor? Counsel, um, uh, petitioner's counsel uh, tried to do amendments to your proposal. Could you respond to those, number one? And number two, um, am I clear that you're really not trying to return completely to Westinghouse because Westinghouse seemed to suggest that a court assigner estoppel um, would reach questions of overbroad claims. And you're not, your test doesn't reach that at all. Meaning you would just look, it seems, as to the time, the claims as claimed at the time of assignment and those issued in the patent. And you don't even get to the question of whether or not, Justice Breyer's question, whether or not that reading is overbroad. So on your first question, Justice Sotomayor, in terms of petitioner's limitations, I think we are fine with a requirement that this be rock solid. I mean, we chose the term materially identical and think that means uh, something. And and as for the second proposed uh, limitation, they suggested that that there should be uh, that 
claim should exist both at the time of the assignment from the assignor and at the time of the assignment to the person ultimately bringing the challenge. That limitation we don't agree with. We think this is focused on the assignor's representations. As to your second question about claim construction, it's it's true that claim construction has, I think, changed to some degree over time. Prior art can still be relevant in narrowing a claim, but only under a canon of essentially narrowing an ambiguous claim to preserve validity. What we don't think is still viable anymore is sort of a freestanding practicing the prior art defense. Well, that somehow, that in my mind, gives credence to petitioner's counsel that maybe the doctrine has lost its utility because Westinghouse was really premised on a claim not dissimilar from this one, that if you read the claim in context, it would be overbroad to the description in the other claims. But you've just admitted that things have changed. How you read patents has fundamentally changed. I think it has changed to some degree, Justice Sotomayor, but that doesn't change the ultimate point of Westinghouse, which was you can't have a core attack on the value of something, the validity of something that a day before you may have implicitly represented has value. Justice Kagan? Ms. Radner, you give three examples in your brief of places where you think under your reformed doctrine, a signer estoppel wouldn't apply or might not apply. It's pre-invention assignments, continuation applications, and changes in the law. Is that it? Is that sort of an exclusive list, or do you have other to add to it? So, Justice Kagan, I don't have others that I'm hiding from you. I don't want to say it's exclusive if there's some other unusual circumstances that would arise that would undermine the basic notion that what someone is saying at time two is inconsistent with what they're saying at time one. But you think those three are basically the world of cases in which that's true? That covers the cases that I can think of, yes. Okay. Mr. Hockman said when I gave him what I consider to be the sort of paradigm cases of a signer estoppel and asked whether they should be estopped, he said yes, but they should be estopped under the equitable estoppel doctrine. And I take it what that would do for him is that it would impose a reliance requirement and that it would impose a sort of extra special affirmative clear representation. So there could be nothing implicit about it. Maybe he wouldn't rely on the oath. I'm making this up a little bit. But I guess the question is what's the difference between equitable and a signer estoppel in your mind as to these paradigmatic cases, which we think of as bait and switch cases, and does that difference make a difference? I think you've put your finger on the two main differences. The first is a knowing affirmative misrepresentation, and the second is justifiable reliance on it. And we do think that would make a difference. It would be extremely difficult to show that in most cases. And this court in Westinghouse specifically said, look, that's estoppel by conduct. That's not estoppel by deed. That's page 351 of Westinghouse. And so I think the court has already made clear that that's a different branch of estoppel doctrine. And what we're getting at here is not necessarily about one party misleading another as much as confidence and conclusiveness in a particular type of formal transaction. Thank you. Justice Gorsuch? 
Ms. Ratner, um, as I understand it, no courts ever apply the version of estoppel uh, that you're proposing now. Um, and so I, I guess my first question is, why doesn't it face the same stare decisis challenges uh, that the petitioner has? So that's one set of questions for you. Second is, with respect to uh, the, the, the choice of relying on estoppel by deed and the analogy to physical property, it allows, your test would allow <laughs> uh, liability even when there's no misrepresentation of fact and the buyer, often in these cases large and sophisticated more so than the seller, could easily determine the validity of the patent uh, on its own and is better positioned to do so. And you also get rid of reliance and I guess I don't understand why we would uh, impose liability on statements that even you'd agree were utterly meaningless at the time. Um, and all that points to my third question, and then I'll stop, and that is if we're going to look at estoppel doctrine, I guess I'm a little confused why we look to physical real estate as the example where deeds, recorded deeds, have a special role um, in, our, in our system and have a special validity rather than personal personal uh, property where these elements, misrepresentation of facts and, and reliance are required, given that patents are so easily killable um, and uh, challengeable in ways that uh, physical real estate, much harder to do so. So those are my three questions. Have at them in any order you want. Sure, I'll take them in order. First, in terms of stare decisis, we do think that we're applying the rationale of Westinghouse to the one area that the Westinghouse... But, but you do agree that no, no courts ever applied anything like the test you're proposing, right? That's correct, Your Honor, but... Okay, so let's move on to the second one then. Sure. Uh, the second one, I, I would strongly resist the idea that we're suggesting you get rid of reliance. We're talking about a different branch of a scalpel doctrine. Again, this court made clear in Westinghouse which... But you say no reliance is required to prove your version of uh, a sign or estoppel, right? Correct, because no... Okay, no so you are getting rid of reliance then. Uh, no, no, Justice Gorsuch, because reliance is an aspect of estoppel by conduct. It's not... Yes, you're just saying you're, you're getting rid of it in this area. You're not getting rid of it everywhere. I accept that. But you're getting rid of it here. And uh, and I guess I'm just curious why, you, why we would get rid of that and the material misrepresentation of fact in, in this particular context and, and, and why the analogy to, to deeds and real, real property makes sense more than, than uh, personal property. So I'd point you to page 351 of Westinghouse and page 902 of the Fox decision, which was the first um, decision. Yes, but if, we, if, we're, if we're modifying and we're doing something nobody's ever done before, why not get it right? Well, I think those give the reasons, Your Honor, which is uh, we're talking about a particular formal transaction here, and the point here is to... Oh, well, the contract's a formal transaction. There are lots of formal transactions. The point, the point is to preserve the conclusiveness of these transactions just as they would be preserved if this, if this were real property. And I think in, if for personal property, there might be other things like a warranty of merchantability that would also prevent someone from saying at time one, this thing has value, and at time two, that it's valueless. Justice Kavanaugh? Uh, thank you, Chief Justice. Good afternoon, Ms. Ratner. I want to follow up on the three examples on page 20 of your brief that Justice Kagan was referencing and focus in particular on the first one and make sure I understand uh, what you're saying exactly. Uh, the brief says, if an employee assigns to his employer all patent rights to any inventions he may develop in the course of his employment, 
the assignment generally would not imply any representation as to the patentability of particular inventions. And I want to know what you mean by the word generally or what's what's captured there and what's not captured there. Sure, Justice Kavanaugh. Our, our point is the same one that I made earlier to the Chief Justice, which is, uh, is this the type of sale or assignment where someone might be said to implicitly represent that the patent rights have value? And it's easy to see that if we're talking about an arm's length sale between A and B, if we're talking about an ex-ante assignment of any inventions that haven't yet even been invented, then you don't have that sort of uh, suggestion or, or implicit warranty that there's value there. Why do you say generally instead of not always, then? I say generally because we're talking about equitable doctrines where there can always be fact-specific situations that I haven't thought of and that we don't want to foreclose analysis of. Okay, there's nothing you're thinking of, though. You just want to be careful not to foreclose it. As I said to Justice Kagan, I'm not intending to hide anything in the paragraph on this page. And then petitioners uh, object to the phrase materially identical, and I just want to give you an opportunity to respond to that again. Yeah, again, to the extent that they're talking about a rock-solid, I think it's the phrase uh, petitioner used, a rock-solid textual uh, similarity, we're perfectly fine with that. Our our point is that there may be some minor changes, say, in in paragraphs or in commas or in an unimportant term that doesn't actually change the claim limitations. And and if that's the case, then we don't think that should undermine the application of a sign or estoppel. Thank you, Ms. Ratner. Justice Barrett? Good afternoon, Ms. Ratner. So I have a question about the choice that the choice that we're facing here. As Justice Breyer pointed out, you know, we can keep or let's just assume for the sake of this argument that I agree that stare decisis establishes that the assigner uh, uh, assigner doctrine exists. We have a choice between two bright line rules: either we have it or we don't, or we can do this middle course that you're charting. That, as you say, no court has applied before. It seems to me that your approach doesn't give us the efficiency of, uh, of estoppel doctrines generally. I mean, think about blunder tongue, patent context, and, you know, estoppel there, issue, issue preclusion, shuts it down and makes litigation more efficient. But here, as I take it, your proposal would probably admire the parties in fights about what's materially identical. I mean, would that be a battle of the experts? So I, I think as an ordinary sense, no, if we're talking about the simple assessment of are, are these claims, are there the same claim limitations or are there extra claim limitations added, we think that could be done in a relatively straightforward way. But I, I would add to the extent there are some factual questions here, we think that that's a benefit of our theory, the problem of the, with the federal circuits theory here is that it basically treats the application of an equitable estoppel principle as an on-off switch, and and that's the the underlying problem that we're trying to resolve. How much are you driven by stare decisis here as opposed to if you were starting from scratch, this is what you would propose that the court adopt? I think that we are probably somewhere in between those two things, given the long period of time in which a sign or estoppel has existed and in which Congress could have acted. We, we give great weight to that. Um, that said, I do think that the historical analogs here still provide support from that if we were for the doctrine if we were deciding in the first instance. Thank you. A minute to wrap up. Ms. Ratner? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I, 
I guess I would just emphasize that what we think is the core advantage of our test, and that's that it puts intellectual property on par with other kinds of property, whereas the party theories would create a mismatch in one direction or the other. So Minerva on one side wants to eliminate assigner estoppel altogether, but that would mean that sales of real property are protected by estoppel by deed, and personal property may be protected by warranties of merchantability, but there would be no analog for intellectual property. And on the other side, the Federal Circuit and Hologic would apply a reflexive rule that covers all invalidity disputes. But as we've discussed, that would mean that estoppel applies even in the absence of logically inconsistent positions, and that's not consistent with historical estoppel doctrines. So we think that our approach here is most consistent with Westinghouse, with that historical development of assigner estoppel, and with the animating principles behind estoppel doctrines generally. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Ratner. Uh, Mr. Wolf. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In 1924, this Court held that Asinor Estoppel was manifestly intended by Congress. In the hundred years since, Congress has maintained the relevant statutory language through multiple revisions of patent law. This Court has explicitly refused to overrule the doctrine, and dozens of lower courts have applied Asinor Estoppel without significant incident or controversy including recently in Diamond Scientific, which explicitly incorporated the claim construction doctrines of Westinghouse. Minerva asked this court to disregard all of this in the service of the purportedly paramount goal of eliminating bad patents. But patent laws have other critical objectives, including incentivizing scientific progress through the protection of patents and fostering predictability in commercial transactions. The logic respectfully submits that if the costs and benefits of Asinor Estoppel are to be reweighed, it should be Congress handling the scales. Whether couched in the principles of stare decisis or ratification, this court should not undermine the hundreds of thousands of still extant bargains struck against the backdrop of Asinor Estoppel. The bargain in this case included Mr. Trukai and his co-inventors expressly selling the rights to future patent applications. The parties valued those rights based on the understanding that respondent would secure whatever claims the patent office would allow, in this case, a claim just like the one that Mr. Chikai successfully secured allowance of with original Claim 31, and that Mr. Chikai would not subsequently challenge their validity. And if Mr. Chikai wanted a different deal, he was free to contract around absent or estoppel per mentor graphics and accept a concomitantly reduced purchase price. But Mr. Chikai now wants to keep both the $8 million he pocketed and the right to undermine what those millions purchased. The inequity of that position has been apparent since the founding of this country, and the doctrine of Asinor Estoppel, born from that recognition, should not be cast aside. Uh, Mr. Wolf, you began by talking about stare decisis and cited uh, some authority for it, but uh, you have to weigh against that, don't you, the court's description of a signer estoppel as a failure and the court's statement that to whatever extent that doctrine may be deemed to have survived the Formica decision or to be restricted by it, uh, it's not controlling. So it's, it's not the strongest stare decisis argument. Your Honor, respectfully, in, in Scott paper, this court considered whether or not to reverse Westinghouse and expressly said it was not doing so. Rather, it created a narrow exception based on this court's long-held concerns about temporal expansions of patent monopolies. In Lear, uh, respectfully to the court in that case, 
There was really no discussion of stare decisis. There was no discussion of congressional intent. And as was noted earlier, the court specifically held uh, or noted that the estoppel in uh, the Axanor context was far more compelling than in the licensee context that Lear addressed. So while there has been critical language, when the court explicitly refuses to overturn a a case, uh, there's no conclusion other than it remains good law. I'd like to see if there's a difference between your position and that of the uh, solicitor, Solicitor General, in particular for the person who enters employment and signs a general uh, uh, assignment uh, of all her inventions to her employer. Uh, does equitable or a sign or estoppel apply in that case? Well, obviously, Your Honor, that's that's not our case. We're not an employee employee con- employer employee context. But I, I, I uh, wasn't I wasn't confused about that. Yes, Your Honor. Apologies. Uh, I, I would suggest that uh, that employers pay employees for research and development. They provide. Uh, the resources to perform that research and development, it is not uh, inequitable for them to expect that the fruits of that research uh, should be uh, given to the employer. So I think we do disagree, at least to some degree. I mean, I I can think of circumstances uh, where an employee uh, would not be stopped uh, putting privity issues aside, for example, if they refuse to sign the oath. But there is some daylight uh, between our position and the government's position in that regard. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Justice Thomas. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, counsel, it seems as though uh, your view of assigner estoppel begins to approach the assignments that um, one would require from an employee. Um, it seems so. How far would you go from the original assignment? Uh, would you? Uh, uh, in this case, uh, in the current case, the uh, we're talking about a patent that is quite different from the original patent. Respectfully, Your Honor, we, we disagree very strongly. Uh, Mr. Chikai, and this is at JA 449, a trial acknowledged that at the time he filed his application, he, did, he thought that he was entitled to a claim without moisture transport. He fought for Claim 31 and succeeded in attaining Claim 31 that did not have moisture transport before the assignment. And so when Hologic took this portfolio over, when they were assigned it, they had express representations from Mr. Chikai uh, that he was entitled to the very claim that they now say were not entitled to. It was only after the fact that he purportedly changed his mind and realized the error of his ways. And, of course, that kind of... Uh, um, financially induced change of memory is precisely the kind of morass that Asnor Estoppel is designed to avoid. Um, you say that if there are any changes to Estoppel, Assigner Estoppel, it should be done by Congress. But couldn't you say that uh, that if you want Assigner Estoppel, Congress should amend the Patent Act? Uh, respectfully, Your Honor, we believe that's backwards. When in Westinghouse, this court said that Asner Estoppel was manifestly intended by Congress. Uh, one, that's pretty strong language. Uh, Congress in 1952 noted when the Supreme Court weakened contributory infringement, for example, and emphatically uh, rejected the Supreme Court's rejection. I'm not sure that's appropriate legal language, but in any event, uh, this, the Congress was 
put on notice of the Supreme Court's view of its intent and how it understood the assignment provision, and it re-ratified it in 1952, and then in 2011-2012 with the America Invents Act, which wholesale changed certain provisions of patent law, uh, it once again just reiterated the assignment provision as is. But it seems as though you are you want uh, Congress by statute to make changes to something that doesn't appear in the uh, Patent Act. Uh, it, so I don't know how that's backwards to say, well, maybe Congress should uh, uh, amend the Patent Act to include uh, a signer estoppel in the first instance. Your Honor, in, in Kimball, for example, this court noted that stare decisis applies regardless of whether decision focused only on statutory text or also relied on the policies and purposes animating the law. So whether or not one views the holding of Westinghouse as expressly construing Section 261 or uh, understanding the animating policy behind 261, either way it's subject to the same deferral to Congress, and it should be up to Congress to change it. Thank you. Justice Breyer? How do you respond to what I've gotten out of some of the, the briefs? Uh, there is precedent, has problems, but 80 years old, 100 years old, what's changed? One, employment practices. You see that general assignment? Go to work somewhere else, and the new company's afraid to go anywhere near it. Second, nature of invention. Artificial intelligence, robots, da-da-da-da-da. Okay? Third, complexity. And complexity means this. Widget, patent, assigned to A. Go to work for B. B, widget prime. A, sues B. All he wants to argue is, of course, the patent on widget doesn't cover widget prime. Because if it did, then, since it wasn't described properly and couldn't be practiced by someone, there wasn't enough information, the patent would have been unlawful. Okay. No, says the Federal Circuit, you can't even argue that. Result? Result extension of many important patent monopolies which shouldn't be there and which, in fact will cost the public, let alone advances, and you can imagine that. All right, now, I may have overstated it. That's how I'm understanding it now. So they're saying, do something. One side says, there's nothing you can do except abolish it. Others say, limit it. I want to hear your response. Your Honor, I have a number of responses to that that, uh, notion of how the world has changed. First, of course, Westinghouse itself was an employer-employee case. So it's changed in in, in amount, but not in kind. Secondly, one thing that has changed uh, is that the PTAB, through the America Invents Act, uh, now allows an inventor to challenge the very thing you are concerned about, whether it be a matter of prior art or under post-grant review, it be a matter of issues of written description or enablement. Uh, we also, Your Honor, has your question hinted at privity issues. And, of course, uh, there is, uh, if, if, it, if an employee goes from company A to company B and is not sufficiently uh, d- uh, directing the activities 
then the privity would break the chain, uh, the privity analysis would break the chain, and you would not have Asnor estoppel. And finally, there are, as I noted before, if the inventor thinks that the way company A characterized his or her invention is not right, uh, he or she can refuse to sign the oath. And in that case, again, you raise the prospect of breaking the chain. But if an employee at company A turns around and, for example, founds a company to compete against the very work he or she did, uh, that, I think, offends our traditional notice, uh, notions just as much today as it did 100 years ago. Justice Alito? Uh, I have no questions. Justice Sotomayor? Counsel, I'd like to pursue Justice Breyer's question on one level, okay? Yes, Your Honor. You're resisting any limitation to a sign or estoppel. But, as, but there is a fairness element that you're not... Um, responding to, which is if a sign or estoppel isn't tethered in some way to the scope of the rights that were actually assigned, then I don't know why it's fair to stop an assigner from seeking to invalidate something that he or she did not actually assign. So, for example, if the original 072 application had only one claim that required moisture permeability, but later you change, if Mr. Truckeye assigned the patent that way, and you revised it, deleting that reference. Why should Mr. Truckeye be stopped? You did something that he didn't attest to, that wasn't, um, within the claim specified, what sense does it make not to let him raise that defense? Yeah, uh, three responses, Your Honor. First, uh, from the reliance perspective, uh, he was paid and Novacep was paid $325 million. He personally pocketed $8 million against the backdrop of the current Asinor Estoppel regime. So whether you want to call this a reliance interest or a fairness interest, it's the same interest, which is he, he, he was paid knowing that Hologic would get what it would get from the patent office. And now, having pocketed that money, he says, well, I want a different deal. So that's, that's a different component of fairness. I, the, I'm the sorry. Set- he pocketed money on a deal that included just one item. You then changed it. Are you saying he pocketed money knowing you would and could change it? So you're just out of luck? I wouldn't phrase it as out of luck, Your Honor. And it, uh, I'm assuming the facts you're stating. Obviously, we disagree with some of the premises of what Petitioner has said. But assuming the hypothetical, uh, as Diamond Scientific noted, what you're buying is the, the full scope of what the specification will bear. There is no dispute in this case that everything that's in Claim 1, the infringed claim, is identified in Mr. Chakai's application. What he asserts is that it wasn't novel, it wasn't new. Well, if he was right, he is free to rely upon Westinghouse and Diamond Scientific's claim construction principles. But we know in this case he's wrong, and we know he's wrong for two reasons. First, the Patent Office originally allowed Claim 31, and second, they tried to institute an IPR against Claim 1, and they didn't even achieve institution. So um, the fairness here 
Um, we agree that there are issues of fairness, but if you're going to rebalance the equation, that is for Congress, not the courts, to do that balancing. Justice Kagan? Mr. Mr. Wolf, you just talked to Justice Sotomayor and before that to Justice Thomas about this case and, and how we should understand things to have played out over time. But let's just assume a hypothetical case, and and I'm not meaning it to have uh, any necessary relationship to yours. Um, and the hypothetical is an inventor who assigns an application, and then the assignee broadens the patent claim beyond anything that the inventor would have thought patentable in the first instance. Why, uh, why should she be stopped? Your Honor, first of all, she can go to the Patent Office and institute a post-grant review and make that argument to the Patent Office to an organization that is not, and, and I'm quoting here from the AIPLA brief, uh, and of course they're the folks that do this stuff for a living, both for plaintiffs and defendants, where they note that inventors, quote, loom large and have a greater influence over trier of fact than anybody else. And so Congress has uh, decided that if, if you're going to make a Section 112 challenge as an inventor, you can go to the Patent Office where they are right. not... Well, she like- could do that. I mean, I take the point, Mr. Wolf, she could do that. But but why should she be stopped under the assigner estoppel doctrine uh, in any event, regardless of that alternative path? I mean, uh, it, it does seem as though the warranty that she made is not inconsistent with what she's doing now. And I would think that that's the critical question for for any estoppel doctrine. Well, one response, Your Honor, is that the, that no case that I'm aware of uh, in this court or any other has distinguished Section 112 uh, invalidity from any other form of invalidity. So from a purely stare decisis or ratification perspective, you, you, you can't argue invalidity, period. Yeah, I didn't uh, really mean to be making a 112 argument because... Uh, I, I just I, I think that this could be true un, under 112 or not true under 112. I mean, the, the 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 point of my hypothetical was just to say that uh, that something meaningful has happened between time one and time two with respect to the claim. If I understand your hypothetical and your question correctly, Your Honor, I would say that the the, the and, and again putting the PTAB issue aside, uh, Westinghouse and Diamond Scientific just in 1988, made clear that as the inventor, you're allowed to say uh, that if you read the patent the way the plaintiff wants to, it's invalid, and so you should read it in a narrower way. And that's exactly what happened in Westinghouse uh, and and in any number of the Asinor Estoppel cases. So that fairness correction is already built in to the jurisprudence. And if there if there is a way to if there's a, an approach to rebalancing that we want to do prospectively, I'm sure there are good policy reasons behind what Your Honor is suggesting, but that should be applied prospectively through statute. Thank you. Justice Gorsuch? So, counsel, on the stare decisis front, uh, I think I heard the SG's office uh, acknowledge we're somewhere in between things. Um, and uh, as I come at it, and tell me what's wrong with this, Westinghouse didn't actually apply the doctrine. It acknowledged its existence and allowed the challenges over the scope of the uh, of the patent. Scott Paper called it a logical embarrassment. Lear said that Scott had undermined the basis for patent estoppel even more than Westinghouse had. So it read Westinghouse as undermining the basis for patent estoppel. 
the world has changed greatly since then, uh, as Justice Breyer pointed out, in terms of employee-employer relations and how these contracts of adhesions are often used against employees. And now we have the, the patent office itself refusing to apply patent estoppel uh, in its own proceedings, for, in IPR proceedings. So the only place left that this doctrine seems to apply is in court. Isn't that a strange state of affairs to, to rest on stare decisis? Your Honor, uh, respectfully, I strongly disagree with the premise of your first statement about Westinghouse. Westinghouse did apply Asinor estoppel. Okay, now, other than that, do you have any other concerns besides Westinghouse? Well, I well, we have Diamond Scientific again in 1988, which is the every single currently existing patent assignment is operating under Diamond Scientific. It is unless they get challenged in the patent office and the IPR, which they could be, and then right and, apply, right? Yeah, right. And Arista, the, the court suggested that the oh, Congress okay. unambiguous. Okay, Sorry, right. so, so, so we got that. And then if we're going to monkey with it, if we're going to change it, the Solicitor General says we should analogize the patents by deed, uh, sorry, estoppel by deed, which has to do with real estate. And it says it only did that because that's kind of what Westinghouse talked about. Why wouldn't the more natural place to look at is, is just plain old estoppel with respect to personal property rather than real estate transactions, uh, given that... Uh, if you look at estoppel by deed, there's no need for material misrepresentation. There's no need for reliance. Um, and this would be this seemingly would be an area in which those would be very critical considerations when a large purchaser is uh, taking a property off of a, a smaller inventor, someone who's well positioned to see whether there are any problems with the patent and who may not rely on a, a stray misstatement um, or a, a puffery. Your Honor, first, on the issue of estoppel by deed, estoppel by deed does not just apply to land. It also applies to personal property when there are the formalities of transfer. Uh, so it, a patent is uh, as heightened a formal transfer as one can imagine in the property context. So I just want to put a pin in that. On the reliance point, when Mr. Chukai, to use our specific example, applies for a claim, when the patent office originally says no, and when Mr. Chikai then successfully fights for allowance of that claim, it's hard to see how that isn't uh, a representation that can be taken seriously okay, by a so potential You would person. win under that standard. I, I, I was asking what, why you'd care about the standard. I understand you think you'd win under that. Thank, thank you, Counsel. Yeah. Justice Kavanaugh? Uh, thank you, Chief Justice. Good afternoon, Mr. Wolf. I want to explore the uh, differences you might have with the Solicitor General. Uh, the Solicitor General wants to retain the doctrine of a sign or estoppel, but to limit it. And I want to make sure I understand your concerns about the SG's position. Um, what, what, how would you describe your differences with the Solicitor General's position as articulated in the brief and today? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, and putting aside the reliance issues and the stare decisis issues, if we were talking about uh, ab initio, what would we think about it? And I think there's, if I could answer that first at the, at the theoretical level and then give a very specific example. At the theoretical level, uh, as worded, the SG's proposal is more stringent than the invalidity test itself. The question the law asks when de determining the validity of claims 
sought after an original application was filed is whether they are supported by the original specification. Nowhere in the law can we find a requirement that subsequent claims be materially identical to original claims for Section 112 to be satisfied. So there's an incongruence between the policy the government is espousing, and it's a perfectly reasonable policy if Congress wanted to go there. It just doesn't match up with the test. And let me give the specific example. It is common for a patent examiner to tell an applicant that claims as written will not be allowed, but if they're modified in one way or the other, the patent will issue. If the applicant that takes the PTO up on its suggestion under the government's test, would that result in a loss of protection of asking or estoppel? So in the real world, it presents a Hobson's choice as phrased, given the way prosecution actually works. And in fact, PhRMA, in its amicus brief, noted the unworkability of the government's test, and it said amended or newly added claims can differ from the original claims in many dimensions, such that evaluating the amount of their difference would be practically impossible. So it's a difficult test to implement. Thank you, Mr. Wolf. Justice Barrett? Mr. Wolf, do you see this case as one about the reenactment canon, where we would say there was a settled interpretation of an act, and then Congress reenacted the statute without touching it, and therefore we assume that Congress intended to ratify it or Congress acquiesced in it? Or do you see this as a case in which there was a settled common law background assumption, this assign or estoppel, and Congress took the soil of the common law with it into the act? And does it matter which way you see it? The answer is both and no. Well, I guess I think it might matter, because the reenactment canon requires a pretty well-established line of cases that would put Congress on notice. And as we've talked about a lot this morning, there's uncertainty in the cases, especially ours. Your Honor, prior to 1952, we do not believe there was any uncertainty. Westinghouse said it was manifestly intended by Congress. Scott said expressly and explicitly it was not overturning the doctrine. And then between 1945 and 1952, we saw three cases and two treatises all unanimously say that Westinghouse was maintained by Scott. Petitioner can't point to a single case because we're not aware of any. But, counsel, when there's the language, and this has come up already, I mean, when you have the language in Scott paper and then in Lear saying that Scott paper undermined any basis for a sign or estoppel, I mean, you can't say that it was completely embraced. Well, obviously, Your Honor, Lear was many years, 17 years after the 52 Patent Act. But it's showing how the courts understood it. So it's still relevant, right? Your Honor, I don't think Lear suggested that Scott paper overruled Westinghouse. I mean, Lear was a policy-driven case. It did not address stare decisis. It did not address congressional intent, congressional language. And as I suggested, and I don't want to belabor it, but the Third Circuit and the Sixth Circuit in the intervening years between Scott paper and the Patent Act expressly acknowledged that Westinghouse was the rule. I mean, we have Hope Basket in 1951 saying the basic rule of estoppel may have been somewhat modified by Scott paper, but it was not abolished. In fact, that case restated the rule. Well, we've been very clear that 
to the extent, let's assume that Formica slash Westinghouse did um, lay down a rule, although there's some dispute about whether it did that. Let's assume that it did. Let's assume that Scott Paper undercut it. We've been very clear in telling lower courts that even if our precedents have made made it a virtual certainty that we would we would overrule it, that that's our prerogative. So the fact that lower courts continue to apply it wouldn't necessarily mean that, as we would view it, that it wasn't a dead letter. But my my time is up. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. A minute to wrap up, Mr. Wolf. Your Honor, the facts of this case comfortably satisfy the policies underlying any of the modifications of Asinor Estoppel proposed by Minerva or the Amici. But for many of the same reasons the doctrine should not be abrogated, it also should not be modified by this court. Assanese have relied on the Estoppel when deciding whether, at what price, and under what terms they wish to acquire patents and patent applications. Assanors have benefited from that reliance through the enhanced assignment value the doctrine creates. And they have also been free to reject the doctrine in whole or in part when negotiating the terms of the assignment. A retrospective change would mean a windfall for Assanors and radically undercutting the return on the deal for a quarter century's worth of Assanese. Any modification to Assanor Estoppel should be made only after careful consideration of the advantages, not just the disadvantage of the doctrine. It should be made after input from all of the stakeholders in the marketplace. Given all this, and given this court's precedent, it should be Congress that decides whether, what, and when such changes should be made. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted. Oh. No. No. Oh, oh I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Hockman, you have rebuttal. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Excuse me. Uh, I will be I will be as quick as I can here. Um, I'm going to start from the narrow and move to the broad. I just want to correct a couple of I think misstatements that, uh, that Mr. Wolf made. He 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 said repeatedly that Claim 31 was obtained. That's not true. Claim 31 was canceled, and it was canceled two years, two full years before Cytic bought the patent. So it was not. Yeah, and, and that's just the way the patent prosecution process goes. Sometimes you learn things after a claim has been given a tentative allowance by the court, um, and, and you have to make changes. Um, he pointed to the testimony in, uh, in, 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 the, in the record about Chukai at one time believing that his claim was more than just moisture transport, but that's not the same thing as covering an applicator head with a moisture impermeable Device. Those are different points, and I think, and I think that, that, that this is exactly the kind of backward-looking overreach that uh, the rules should prohibit. Um, <clears throat> I think Hologic's position makes Claim 31 a red herring. Um, it, you know, it, it, they were very clear today. It, whatever they can squeeze out of the patent, the assignor is stuck with, and that just doesn't make any sense. You know, Scott allowed, Scott Paper allowed a party, an assignor, to um, say that the patent that what he was doing was outside of the scope of patent protection because of, of the time limited nature of the patents, there is no principled reason why an assignor shouldn't be able to say that what he's doing is outside the scope of the patent protection because it's beyond the it's it's beyond the breadth of the application that he sold, and that's our argument. 
And, and, and it's also, by the way, the argument that Westinghouse accepted. And this is toward the end of the Westinghouse opinion. It's page 354 toward the, toward the bottom there when it's talking about Claim 6. Claim 6 in that case was pending at the time of the, insight, uh, of, of the assignment, was overbroad, and the assigner was nonetheless allowed to dispute the breadth of even narrower claims than the overbroad claim that had been pending at the time. And this is consistent, by the way, with Kimball. Kimball says, in case after case, the court has construed these laws to preclude measures that restrict free access to formerly patent, patented as well as unpatented inventions. And it cites Scott Paper. That's the point. If you're outside the scope of patent protection, you should be allowed to, ch- that the inventor, even an assignor, should be allowed to challenge it. And, then fi- and, and in addition, the AIA and IPRs and post-grant review, that's just another reason to abandon assign or estoppel. That's another one of the significant changes that has taken place. The doctrine doesn't have any legs to stand on. And, the, you know, the government pushes towards the real property analogy and estoppel by deed, but it's really important to remember that a sign or estoppel, unlike estoppel by deed, is committing property to the public. And so the analogy doesn't hold. When, when a, when a, in estoppel by deed, somebody is trying to take back what they had sold. But that's not true here. What we're trying to do is um, ensure that they get to keep the substantial value of what we sold them, but no more. And to the extent that there's any concern about um, real mischievous behavior by assignors, equitable estoppel and state law remedies remain available to address them. For all those reasons, we respectfully request that you uh, vacate the judgment and remand with instructions to consider our Section 112 invalidity arguments on the merits. Thank you, counsel. Now the case is submitted.